If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9. Our text is Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Just the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that your grace may continue to rest upon us this morning as we give attention to your word. Father, as we consider this very brief testimony of Saul Help us to look deeply behind the testimony. Help us with the eyes of faith to see the God who works wonders through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen. As we've been following the book of Acts, last week we were considering Philip and we saw the the thriving ministry of Philip as he went into Samaria because of persecution in Jerusalem in part thanks to Saul. It was sharing the gospel in the town of Samaria. Many people come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
And then he is led to the Ethiopian who comes to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then miraculously, Philip is transported elsewhere. He also continues his work in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Luke then brings us back to Saul. And it's almost as if he is saying, while these things are happening, while the gospels continue to be proclaimed, as people continue to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's something else happening, and that is Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. No longer content with binding Christians in Jerusalem, now he's looking to go outside the walls of Jerusalem to seek out the Christians who are refuging in the town of Damascus. The scriptures don't give a great deal of attention to Saul of Tarsus, that is, his life before conversion. In fact, his life is summed up really just in these, in these set of verses. But the scriptures give a greater deal of attention to his life after his conversion. And isn't that what matters most? Yes, your past, who you were before Christ, does matter. And it can even be helpful in testifying and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. But more important is your past is who you are now in Christ. And so while giving consideration to Saul of Tarsus, Saul the persecutor, Saul the ravenous wolf who seeks to devour Christians, the end this morning is really to focus much more on Paul the Apostle. Saw this sinner on the road to Damascus filled with a this zeal, this Phineas-like zeal towards and against the church has begun his campaign against the church. And as we see in the text, and I would think having aggravated the thunderbolts of God, God, or Jesus Christ, comes and confronts him in the road of Damascus. And in that moment, Saul of Tarsus dies. And a new man has been born to take his place. And what we see in the passage, based on what God says to Ananias, who calls Ananias to go to Saul of Tarsus, he says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry. For what purpose? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So he who gave his life to persecuting Christians is now going to be the one chosen to go and proclaim that Jesus to the ends of the earth. So he is saved for gospel proclamation. He is saved to carry the name that he used to persecute to Gentiles, even to those in high authority, and of course his own kinsmen, the Jews. And his calling is really not that it's not different from the calling that you and I have. Paul was saved in order to proclaim, and so we are also saved to proclaim. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
yes, saved to the glory of God in Christ. Yes, saved so that we can be reconciled with Christ Jesus. Yes, saved so that we can have eternal life and live in the paradise of God. But we've also been saved so that we can also go out and proclaim. Proclaim the excellencies, the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of Christ Jesus. We're called to be testifiers of what we have received and experienced ourselves through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The conversion of Saul, like many other salvation stories, like many of your own personal salvation stories, are for the purpose of showing the great power of the gospel of God. As I said, a man died on the road to Damascus, and a new one has been born to take his place. This man, Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, has been completely transformed. He's been struck, he's been blind, and he's been so shaken to the core that he would not even eat for three days or even drink anything. And so when God tells Ananias to go to Saul, he tells him that Saul is praying as well as he should communion with God, pursuing the Lord, perhaps in confession of his sins, seeking for the great mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And so then we see that when Ananias comes to visit with him and prays with him that something like scales falls from his eyes and receives the Holy Spirit, this falling of the scales from his eyes, not quite sure what it means, but this is a physical manifestation of something that's happening in reality. This is a sort of a confirming that this man has truly been saved and has received the Spirit of God. And later on, when Paul talks about his own testimony, he says that he joined disciples immediately following his conversion. And so, we see that this one, this Saul of Tarsus, has been converted. He identifies with Christ Jesus by submitting to baptism and he joins himself to believers. The things that the scriptures teach, the things that you would expect from a person who's come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And such is the power of the gospel of God that not only is this man saved from his sins, but he is completely changed. He is transformed. The one who used to persecute the people of God, the one who used to devour the sheep of Christ's pasture becomes a sheep himself. And furthermore, he becomes a shepherd, a shepherd of the people of God. You can see, or get a sense, we'll read the passage to you, but in Acts chapter 20, in his last words, the Ephesian elders, he says, he talks about his, his ministry, his his private personal ministry and his public ministry, going from house to house, teaching in public the whole counsel of God, admonishing the people of God night and day with tears. The very people that he once persecuted, now he is admonishing with tears as an affectionate shepherd. Not only that, he is so transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he even considers himself as a kind of father to believers. 1 Corinthians 4, you can see you can see this in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For you have countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
that is not why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And it's not that Paul is competing with the fatherhood of God, but having traveled and having proclaimed the gospel, having seen many people come to saving faith, having discipled many of those believers and started those churches, he has an affectionate, a strong affection for the people of God because he has seen firsthand the, the lives that have been transformed by the gospel. And he has firsthand, personal way, discipled these believers so that he can feel this father-like love to the very people that he once used to persecute and drag off to prison and even commend for their execution. Not only that, but we see his zeal redirected, the one who zealously pursued the people of God, campaigning against them. Now we see that zeal turn in a different direction. Second Timothy 2.8, the Apostle Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. How zealous is the Apostle Paul for Jesus Christ and the people of God? He says that he endures everything, even the very chains that he is bound with. The one who used to drag off Christians in chains is now in chains himself for that same gospel that he tried to extinguish from the face of the earth. But there's another point of transformation. We can see just how deep the transformation of Saul from of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another point of transformation that makes this transformation quite clear, which we just kind of hinted at in this last set of verses in 2 Timothy 2.8. This Saul of Tarsus become Paul the Apostle. It's also the same one who says in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because he is so unashamed of this glorious gospel and willing to endure all things for the sake of the proclamation of this gospel, he suffers greatly. And there we see just how profound the transformation was that the gospel had on Saul of Tarsus, that he would endure such suffering for the sake of the gospel. Certainly suffering is inevitable for all, but it would seem based on God's particular calling on Paul, based on the rest of the book of Acts, based on the New Testament letters, you can make a strong case that much of the church's suffering was directed towards the Apostle Paul. And so you see how much he was willing to suffer on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It would seem that 
he is called to a kind of programmatic ministry. When we have two different programs, like say Word and XL, they each consist of different functions. You cannot produce or create an essay on Excel. You can try, but it might be quite difficult. You cannot produce sort of an Excel spreadsheet on Microsoft Word because they're two different programs with two different sets of functions. And so in the same way, Paul is given, or Saul of Tarsus is given to a programmatic kind of ministry that is, you preach the gospel, you will suffer. You will disciple, you will suffer. You will go into new territory to proclaim that gospel, and you will suffer. Suffering, suffering, suffering. It's like no matter what he does, he is met with suffering almost each and every time. That seems to be what the Lord is saying when he's saying, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And this is what is unique about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Yes, we are all saved in order to proclaim what makes the ministry of Paul so distinct is that his comes with a high degree of suffering. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, once said that those that bear the Christ's name must expect to bear the cross for his name, and those that do most for Christ are often called out to suffer most for him. So as we consider, as we see the profound transformation of the Apostle Paul, turning from a ravenous wolf to a sheep, turning into a shepherd of the people of God, turning as a kind of father-like figure for the people of God, seeing that zeal directed, seeing how willing he is to suffer on account of the gospel, we see that the greatest power of God is not seen in the miracles that we see in or read about in the book of Acts. And God, who is the omnipotent God, could show his power and many upon many ways. But he has decided that his power would become most evident in a message. This is where God's power will be most concentrated, in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That we, as instruments in God's hands, we, as jars of clay, will contain in ourselves this treasure of the gospel. And that God makes his power known, even through us, in this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, verse 16, Paul, retelling his conversion story, says, But rise and stand upon your feet, the Lord told him, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness the things in which you have seen, in me, seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saved in order to proclaim, proclaim the message of the power of God that takes those who are from undarkness and transfer them into the light, who takes those and delivers them from the power of Satan and delivers them over to the power of God so they might receive forgiveness of sins. The Lord has a pattern of taking the things that are weak and showing his power. I remember in 
Judges and Gideon amassing a great army to come against the Midianites. And the Lord told him, you have way too many people. I want you to dwindle your army to just 300 men. Just 300 against a vast army of Midianites. And in Judges 7-2, it actually says there the reason why God did this. He says it's because, he says, lest you should boast. In other words, I don't want you to take the credit. You're not getting any credit out of this. I don't want you to come to a place of pride and think, my own hands delivered me. Our own hands delivered us from the Midianites. No, I want you to be beset with weakness so that in the end when I gave you victory, all glory will come to me. When it comes to activating the power of God, there's three things that are required. Number one is declaring the message. Now, I am not one to try to impose limits on God and the displaying of his power, but God intends to show his power when the message is proclaimed so that when the message is snuffed out or when the message remains silent, right, we cannot reasonably expect that the Lord will display his power. So one way to activate the power of God is to declare the message of the power of God to save sinners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second is the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is what activates the words, the message of the gospel, so that he gives the hearer the ability to respond to that gospel. There's the Spirit. that is necessary in the sharing of the message. And then the third thing that is required to activate this power is weakness. It is when people know that they do not have it all in themselves, when they consider themselves perhaps unworthy, when they perhaps consider themselves not eloquent enough or not bold or courageous enough to share that message, God oftentimes uses human weakness to display his power and his strength. I remember a young man once who was approached by someone who was looking to start a wonderful ministry. And this person across the table from the young man shares their heart, their desire for this ministry, what is the goal, and shares with the young man what, like, what is his role, what is his responsibility. And the young man receives it, he's hearing it all, and then finally the person across the table says, what do you think? And the young man says, sounds wonderful, sounds amazing, but why me? And the person across this table responds, that's why. That's exactly why. The Lord, the habit of using those who ask themselves, why me? Why would God use me? Why would the Lord want me to do this? Who am I? I'm undeserving. What about that person? That person is more qualified. That person is much more talented. That person is much more gifted. Why would the Lord consider me? And the Lord responds and says, that's exactly why. Because the Lord has a pattern of using those who admit their weakness. 
the Lord, in fact, considers admission of weakness as a kind of strength. Even the Apostle Paul admitted his own weakness, and by way of response, the Lord tells him that my power is made perfect in weakness. Not in power, not in strength, not in ability, not in gifts, not in talents. No, his power is made perfect in weakness. So we consider the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. And we come to know later just how knowledgeable he is, how educated he is, how bold he is. But we know from the pattern of Scripture is that not that the Lord called him because he had all these gifts and all these talents and all all this education. Is that the Lord's pattern is to oftentimes call those who are weak and recognize their weaknesses and recognize their own undeservedness, first and foremost, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The salvation of the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus takes us to considering staggering sins and sinners. Saul is just one of many in the scriptures, in line with many others who are just like him. Consider David taking a woman that was not his, taking her for his own, and laying with her, and then taking her husband and sending him off and putting him in the front line so that he might die. Staggering, staggering sins. Consider the sins of Joseph's brothers who took their own brother, put him in the ditch, and then sold him off to slavery staggering sins, and then to go on and tell the family, to tell friends, to tell their dear father, your son is dead. Staggering sins. Or how about the Samaritan woman? Jesus initiates a conversation with her. And he says to her, you have been with five men, and the man that you are with right now is not your husband. Go call him. Yes, in the world, it might seem normal, but it's not. Staggering sins, a staggering sinner. Or how about Peter? Peter, called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter, called to be, to sit at the, at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. Peter, chosen to behold the miracles of Jesus Christ, to walk with Jesus the ride or die, Jesus. I will be with you to the end, Jesus. And then when Jesus is crucified, denying Jesus, denying the Savior, denying the Son of God, denying even walking with Jesus for three years, denying him not once, not twice, but three times. Those are staggering sins, not because the sin itself is of a, it's of a heinous quality, but because of the person that he was denying makes the sin staggering. And yet, in each and every one of these cases, there is something to behold, and that is mercy. 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. He considers himself the least in rank amongst the apostles because he used to persecute believers. 
And then in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Though I formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So in one sense, he considers him least in rank amongst all the apostles because he used to persecute the church. And then in another sense, he considers himself to be the foremost of sinners for the same reason, because he used to persecute believers, the very people of God. And he says that he was saved for his particular purpose. It is so that Christ might display his perfect patience to those who would believe. And so in the life of the Apostle Paul, in his very short story of conversion and considering the transformation that he had experienced through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see that he is just a one of many staggering sinners who were saved to display Christ's spectacular mercy. And it is this spectacular mercy that should animate us to live for Christ, that is this spectacular mercy that should drive us to meet one another's needs and love one another with bloodly affection. It is this spectacular mercy that should fuel our evangelism and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this spectacular mercy that should cause us to continue to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. The Lord has chosen to display his mercy in the gospel, and this is his chosen means of spreading the fame of his name across the earth. And he does this through us when we ourselves have been enamored and gripped by such divine mercy. I've been baffled by Romans 11.32, and I'm probably doing you a disservice and even putting this passage before you because I'm still wrestling with it, but it still sort of captures my mind. At Romans 11.32, it says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He has consigned, he has placed together, that he has in some ways kept all in disobedience, though himself not being sinful. He has kept all in this kind of disobedience so that he might in turn have mercy on all. So it's almost like in a way that he's saying, what is the purpose of letting sinners remain in sin? It is so that God might then display his perfect patience and mercy towards them. For the glorifying of Christ Jesus and the gospel. It is this spectacular mercy that should give strength to our assurance of God's love for us. Let's face it, oftentimes we tend to, to anchor that, that strength of our assurance on things that are not helpful. We ground that assurance of God's love for us perhaps on usefulness, how useful we can be or how useful we are no longer in comparison to who we were or the energy of the strength that we once had. We might base that assurance on gifts 
on talents. You might even base the assurance of God's love for you based on what other people think of you. Rather, the strength of your assurance ought to be determined by considering the, the Himalayan heights of the holiness of God. What do I mean by that? If you're hiking up a mountain, you might take a pause to rest, and you might be able to see the summit, and it still looks so far off, though you've been hiking for so long, and it's easy to become discouraged because you consider how far you have to go. So oftentimes we examine ourselves and we look in the mirror and we think, how much further do we have to go? There's so much work. There's so much about me that I wish was different. There's so much growing to do. So far to go. And yet the strength of our assurance of God's love for us comes from considering that the one who is holy that the one who is enthroned in heaven, the one who is constantly glorified and praised by the angels of heaven, did not command us to continue to climb up the mountain, but instead came down from the mountain to meet with us. And in that we see the depths of Christ's love for us in order to display spectacular mercy. And so we can comprehend the magnitude of God's love for us. And even our own love for the Lord is is strengthened, it's deepened, it's broadened. When we remember how far Jesus came to save us from our sins. And to think that this is the way that Christ has chosen to make his name famous. By showing spectacular mercy to staggering sinners and their staggering sins. So in a way, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle serves as a way of reminder to us of the incredible mercy of God towards sinners. By way of conclusion, see a few words the different categories of Christians that may be here this morning. First, to the disheartened Christian. You may be here and disheartened because you feel like you failed to measure up because you consider how much further you have to go and you are discouraged. You are disheartened because you consider yourself perhaps unlovable or unworthy and perhaps falsely because of giving too much attention to what others think of you. For every look that you take in the mirror, you need to take ten looks to Christ. Focus on Jesus. Focus on on the Lord. You may feel as if you are the last person running in a marathon and everyone else is way ahead of you, but it matters not because God's love for you is not determined by performance. In fact, it is the other way around. It is God's love for you that drives performance. It is that very love and that mercy that Christ has shown you that compels you to continue to run the race no matter what that pace looks like. 
And you can be assured of this, that from the very beginning that you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have received the love of God to the fullest degree. And it has not changed since then. It is impossible for the Lord to love you more because he's already given his love for you to the fullest degree. And because his love for you is not driven by performance, you cannot make his love for you burn less hot. To the backsliding Christian, if you feel as though you are taking one step forward and taking ten steps back, you feel as if you are in a kind of a muddy slope. You take a step and you feel like you might even catch some stride and you're moving ahead and you're getting up, but a moment comes when you are slipping in the mud and then you slide all the way back down and you feel like you have to start all over again. Be encouraged, dear brother or sister. It may be hard to hike up the muddy slope, but the good news is that Christ Jesus came down into that muddy slope And even now, he extends his hand for you to reach. Keep reaching the arm of Christ. His mercy doesn't run out. He continues to be merciful. And yes, he hates sin. And yes, he hates your sin. But it's also your very sins that move him to pity. The Lord, when God revealed himself, To Moses, he declared himself by proclaiming something. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord seeks to help you and encourage you to feel as though you are backsliding. Now, if you are in a perpetual state of backsliding and there are no steps forward that you have taken, I may be worried that you have not yet experienced saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the good news is that God is rich in mercy, and even now, He is merciful to you, and today, the muddy rags could be changed into glorious robes of righteousness by simply confessing your sins to the Lord and believing in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lastly, to the despondent Christian, whether you are despondent today or tomorrow, if it comes and goes without notice, if you're in that despondency or in that depression for hours or for days or for weeks or even for months, we had some flowers in our house. And if you've ever been in our house, there's the kitchen, whether well, you come into the, the, the living room, oh, sorry, the dining room. I don't, know, I don't know my own house. Come into the dining room, and then there's the kitchen, and in between there's a bar. We have some flowers, some tulips there, right in the middle, right where the bar is. And I noticed two days after they were purchased that the tulips had bent. They were bending all together in one direction. And many of you know as well as I do that flowers tend to bend 
in the direction where they receive the most sun. If you are disheartened, if you are depressed, I am encouraged that you're here this morning because it means that you are bending in the right direction. Continue bending towards the Lord, even though I feel like dark clouds and nothing but dark clouds. The Lord calls you to himself, and the Lord, even through the dark clouds, just like in a, dark, in a, in a cloudy day, while still the sun is out, it is still, there's still a brightness because the dark clouds cannot completely extinguish the light of the sun. So also the dark clouds of despair and suffering and discontentment or discouragement or depression cannot cloud out or darken the light of hope that God continues to shine upon his people. And even though you may not feel anything or feel any different, believe that the light of God's hope continues to shine and is producing something in you. It is sustaining you. It is nourishing you. It is feeding you. So continue to bend towards the light. Bend yourself to Christ Jesus. Keep coming. Keep pursuing in his word. Keep praying until those clouds are no more And you can truly and fully shower in the light of his glorious mercy and grace. By way of response, let us go before the Lord and let us take communion together. A very tangible uh, display of God's mercy towards us. And I have actually, I failed to grab one of those cups. Would somebody be kind enough to grab one for me? Jesus Christ came into the world. Thank you. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to display his magnificent and spectacular mercy towards sinners. And the Lord has given to his church the bread and the cup. He says that when you meet, take this bread and take this cup because this bread represents my body that was bruised for sinners and that this cup represents my blood shed for sinners. All intending to remind us of Christ's sheer mercy. So whether you are here as a member of Seacoast Community Church or not, if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your life is characterized by repentance, walking towards holiness. Yes, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fall, but we get back up and we continue to repent and walk towards the Lord. If that is you and you have also received baptism, then you are welcome to retake this meal as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. And even if you feel yourself unworthy, even if you feel yourself doubtful, wondering and asking yourself, I don't know if I should take this meal. I don't know if I should. This meal is for you. This is for you. Take it and eat it with confidence. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Jesus Christ died for you. This is for you.
But if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and do not call him your Lord and Savior, then we ask that you, that you not take this meal with us. The Lord cautions and says that anyone who takes this meal in an unworthy manner drinks a particular judgment upon him or herself. And we would want to be, you, you to be spared of that judgment. But the Lord is showing you his mercy today. He is calling you to come to him. He says that anyone who comes to him, he will never cast out. Receive his mercy. Receive his grace. Recognize that you are a sinner in need of his salvation. For without that salvation, you are deserving of his judgment and his wrath. But consider the life of the Apostle Paul. Consider the Samaritan woman. Consider what you've heard today and how God shows himself great in displaying his mercy towards sinners. Receive that mercy today through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call to him as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. Before we take this together, let's take a moment to silently reflect. Pray from your seats. Go before the Lord. Whether that's to praise him for what he's done, whether it's to confess sin, whether that is a, a, a communicating to God your confidence that Christ Jesus has died for you. Take some moments to pause, pray, and reflect from where you are. We will take the bread and then the cup in the same way that we always do. But let us take it with confidence. Believing that Christ Jesus has indeed died for sinners. That he has died for us. That he has died for you. So let's take the bread together. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ bruised for you body of Christ bruised for me. Just saints, the blood of Jesus shed for you. The blood of Jesus shed for me. Lord, Father, you are the God of mercies, the scriptures say. And we're so, so thankful that you are a merciful God. 
we are undeserving of your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who rose again from the dead, and is now seated on high to the right, to right hands, and has sent forth his Spirit to dwell in believers as a security of your love towards us. Lord, there are many moments, there are many times where your dear believers, where your dear children struggle with assurance of faith, where they struggle to believe in their hearts that you do indeed love them. But would you continue to encourage your people and remind them of your grace and point them to your spectacular mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be animated by such mercy. May we continue to be transformed by such incredible mercy. For our great joy and for the spread of your name, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.